Heather praying for our um, decision making coming up, the EU referendum, how to vote. It's not my place to tell you how to vote, but I, I would love for every single one of us to exercise our democratic privilege to vote and to vote in the most informed way possible, particularly from a Christian perspective. I, I don't know about you, I'm tired, frankly, of the binary, sort of minimalist binary um, framework of so much of the um, uh, political debate. It doesn't touch on so many issues that as Christians we should be thinking about. And I really recommend this book by Andrew Goddard. Uh, he's an ethical theologian. Uh, he's written this book. It's under the sort of Grove booklet. So it's a little, little booklet. They say, I think the strap line is um, uh, often the first word if it's not the last. And uh, so it's a kind of it, just an, an impression, a, a taster into how we might think. It's called The EU Referendum, How Should We Decide? Andrew Goddard, uh, look it up on Google and you'll be able to, um, you can download the copy, it's uh, downloadable. Uh, really helpful on how we should think about when we talk about economy and how do economies work? That sort of helps our decision. Authority, what is that? How does that work? Power, how should that be stewarded? And uh, when we think about that in terms of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. It might just Europe and this nation, but on earth as it is in heaven. What does heaven look like? How is that governed? What does the economy look like in heaven? How is power exercised in heaven? And therefore, how should we look to bring that about on earth? Um, doesn't give you the answer to how to vote yes, no, in, out, but just informs the thinking. Because um, I, I don't know about you, I'm not getting much from the soundbite debates and the mudslinging, uh, and so I need help. Uh, second, just these leaflets here uh, for next week, open house. We love that, sort of guest event, 10.30, so do use these leaflets by way of uh, invitation with colleagues, friends, and so on. Here we are. 1 John, chapter 4, as we... Um, we continue in our series. By the way, sorry, I'm, I'm Tim. I'm the vicar here. I should have introduced myself for those of you who are new. Uh, and we're working our way through uh, the Apostles' Creed. It's a kind of statement of belief. And uh, we've got to... The, what I'm going to be speaking on today is I believe, we believe, in Jesus Christ, crucified, died, was buried. Uh, particularly that, that little phrase, Jesus Christ, crucified. What do we, what do we mean when we say that by way of the creed. Here is what John, he was uh, the apostle that Jesus loved. He wrote John's gospel. It's also, uh, God gave him the revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And here are a number of letters he wrote. We're in the first one, chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. We could go on, but let's pause there. And particularly, I guess, if I was going to have one sentence or verse that uh, I want to speak from today as we think about Jesus Christ crucified. It's that sentence there in verse 10. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. Not bad to commit this to memory. Have it flowing through your very being. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. short prayer Father we ask in these next few minutes that your spirit here would indeed live in us in such a way that you open our eyes our mind our heart shape our wills according to this and other scriptures we want to align our lives with the truth and the love and the mercy that is revealed through your word. Teach us, correct us, shape us, inspire us, Lord, so that we go from this place out into the places where you've called us to live and work. We go differently, living lives that bear to your grace and truth. that the mysteries contained in this creed would make sense to the men and women that we engage with in our day-to-day lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is love. Not that God loved us. Sorry, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We've been thinking about belief. That's, that's the creed, credo, I believe. Uh, and thinking about belief as um, kind of in a, in a propositional truth, I believe, in that chair. Uh, and that's a little bit different from when I actually sit in the chair and it bears my weight. It's a different kind of faith in action. There's trust. I derive something from that. And when it comes to this, I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified. On one level, we're just stating the obvious. There's no credible historian today that denies that a figure called Jesus lived in the Middle East at around about the time, gospel accounts, and others though, non-Christian. Josephus was a Jewish Christian, wasn't a Christian uh, historian and um, sorry, Jewish historian, not a, not a Christian one, and so he's writing about the life of Jesus, pretty contemporary. He acknowledges that this this extraordinary figure lived, uh, did amazing things. He, he recounts some of the miracles. He talks about uh, living our life, and he records that he died, as many people were. Jesus was not the only one who was crucified at that time. The Emperor Nero, in particular, the latter half of the first century, had thousands of people crucified during his barbaric rule. Nothing unusual in stating that Jesus Christ was crucified. But the thing about the 
the New Testament that even just at a cursory glance, if you're you're sort of new to Christian things and you're maybe just reading through some of these letters that are written here by these early Christians, you can't help but notice that time and time and time again they refer back to this event. But they're not describing the event itself. That's taken as read. Jesus Christ is crucified. And the creed, in a sense, doesn't, doesn't invite you to sort of be, was he or wasn't he? Did he die of crucifixion or not? That's not the issue. The issue you're, you're called to, to sort of press into is not just I believe in the chair, but I'm, I'm deriving benefit from it. It's not just I believe Jesus Christ died a horrible death through crucifixion. I'm pressing into the significance of his death. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River with a legion of men. Event. No historian would deny that that happened. And on one level, that was a hugely insignificant event. Lots of people crossed over the Rubicon River. It's not, not like the River Thames. It was, it was more like a sort of stream. It was relatively, in places, it was relatively easy to, to walk across it. Lots of people did. It doesn't get recorded in history. You won't, you'll never know about it. The fact that Julius Caesar walked across the Rubicon River with a few men after him is in and of itself insignificant, except that on this occasion when Julius Caesar crossed the river, it was to declare war against the Republic of Italy and against the Senate of Rome. That particular crossing of the Rubicon River was hugely significant in the history of the known world then. Even today, it will echo down the annals of history. And the New Testament writers, they're not concerned really about the fact of the crucifixion. They want us to understand its significance. This is love, John writes. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't say, and sent his son who was crucified. And so when we say that in the creed, you see, that shorthand for the significance of the crucifixion, that God loved us so much that he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ? Why is it in this creedal statement that we uh, Christians throughout the ages and across the world today will recite as part of their corporate worship? Two things in answer to the question, the significance of the cross. First of all, the cross of Jesus Christ, the fact that he died, reveals the seriousness of the human condition. The cross of Jesus Christ reveals the seriousness of our human condition. This is love, not that we loved God. That phrase is significant. First part of verse 10. The cross shows that when God elected, and again in the start of John's gospel, he describes this, when John elected Jesus, sorry, God elected in Jesus, as John recalls, to live amongst us, to show us what he's like, in the wonderful phrase, the end of verse 14, chapter one of the gospel, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus, the perfect human being. He lived a beautiful life, a pure life, a wonderful life, literally. We've already seen in the creed how 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man, living amongst us, the most perfect human being. And what was our response? We, we had become so twisted and ruined as a human race that when we are confronted in human form by someone so good, our response is utter evil. And we take him and we string him up on a cross. One perspective is that the cross shows us, it demonstrates, it holds up a mirror to, the, to what's really going on inside of us as a human race. When we see someone who is so good, we respond with something so evil. We kill him. We extinguish the very life he came to demonstrate for us, to offer for us, to invite us to live in ourselves. The cross demonstrates how sinful we had become. It's what theologians call the fall. The fall from grace. When we rebelled as a human, Genesis chapter 3, as a human race, we rebelled from God's goodness and God's love. We chose not to walk in the way he commanded. We made ourselves God. We made up our own rules. And the fruit of us trying to be God is that when God appears amongst us, we kill him. The significance of the cross is to hold up a mirror to the reality of what's going on inside us. Now, we find this difficult to swallow. And colleagues and housemates and so on who don't yet know the Lord have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ find it even harder. I find it incredibly hard when I encounter um, uh, couples here bringing their children for baptism if they're not themselves maybe practicing Christians. Uh, haven't fully grappled with all the concepts of the creed and they bring these sweet little ones I may have mentioned this uh, recently in, a, in another talk and you look at these sweet little bit and they're so innocent and they're so cute and it's an interesting conversation because with the baptism uh, vows that they, they make they, they basically declare that they, they talk about the fall I repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbor and they, you can see that it's quite difficult for them to oh, it's a sweet little one you're not saying they're a sinner are you? Well, I wouldn't put it like that. They have all the potential, particularly through the initiation of baptism, to become a saint. But we are born into original sin. We're born into this uh, kind of disease, if you like, that we have to accept collective responsibility. When Jesus stands amongst us, we can do something like that. I don't want to say to the parents, it's really hard to imagine, but do you think... Do you think you'll need to invest quite a bit of time teaching them how to be naughty as they grow up compared to how much time you'll need to invest teaching them how to be good? I, I know it firsthand. I'm the father of three children. They're all kind of grown up now. But I remember our, our first child, she was an absolute cutie when she was two. She had little blonde hair, gorgeous eyes, sweet little smile. She skipped around innocently through life. You just say, oh, little, little angel. <laughs> I know I'm biased, but you know, you'd have thought that too. <laughs> we went to, I remember we went to my parents once. She's, yeah, she's about two. And uh, we were kind of sitting, it's a nice sunny day like day, and we were sitting out, there's a sort of patio, uh, and then they had a little sort of flower bed. 
And uh, my mum is, is, is not a bad uh, gardener. Sadly, that hasn't passed in the gene pool. And um, so she, she's a lovely sort of flower bed. And uh, Bex was sort of running around playing. Uh, and she, she hasn't, because she's too young to have a concept of that's the patio, that's a lovely flower bed. So she's running all over the flower bed. And we said, oh, love, 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 done, done, done. Can you see? Look, look, this is, uh, walk on here. And then that is lovely. That's Granny's lovely flower bed. So we don't go on lovely Granny's flower bed. We just run on the patio. You can, you're free to go run anywhere there, but not. And I could just, as I was trying to explain this, I could see she was computing. And it was just that she didn't say anything. She wasn't capable of many words. It was the look in her eye. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, I remember, because it, it sent little shivers down my spine. <laughs> she, too, she fully comprehended, patio good, flower bed bad. She totally got that. And so she sort of just, she kept an eye on me, and she sauntered her little way over to the edge of the patio and I kid you not it was as deliberate as this she looked at me she picked up her foot and she hovered it <laughs> over the flower bed and she, she looked at me I can't stand on one and then she just touched it there was contact and then she looks at me and the look in her eye was what are you going to do about that <laughs> two years old to, to the world, to the watching world, a sweet little innocent child. I tell you what's going on in there. The, the, just a childlike manifestation of the fall. I tell you what, ladies and gents, it's in every single, it's in me. And it's in every single one of us. Until, until we come under the full understanding of the significance and the power and the forgiveness and the cleansing and the restoration and the setting free and the liberation of the cross of Jesus Christ. But until... We do that. The cross of Jesus Christ says to us, this is the potential for evil that is in every single one of us. The potential of rebellion that is in every single one of us. That's the first thing that the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates. Let me just say at this stage, the fall, we need saving. Creation, we are worth saving. God created us to be in relationship with him because we are valuable to him, because he loves us. He longs to be in relationship with us and us with him. This is, God creates us out of the overspill of his love, from his heart. Creation is we are worth saving. The fool says we need saving. And the cross, if you like, is the, is the focus of that particular teaching. Secondly, the cross reveals the depth of God's love for us. Our sin, that rebellion, that toe on the flower bed is dealt with through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is love, verse 10, 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning sacrifice this is the significance of the cross of jesus christ when we say i believe in jesus christ crucified we're drilling into the significance of jesus christ coming to be an atoning sacrifice notice the qualifier there i'll come on to atonement in a minute not just a sacrifice now we can, be, we can get a little bit lazy here as Christians who understand this and, and many people who maybe aren't practicing Christians or aren't regular churchgoers uh, they would, but have some idea of Jesus would think, oh yeah, he died on the cross as a sacrifice. 
And maybe we think our, our songs and hymnody can sometimes shorthand the full significance of the cross. So we, we think of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice. The words of a song, great song, but it's shorthand. And John spells it out for us here, an atoning sacrifice. There was purpose. Pat preached a storm this morning on, um, to the 10.30 service on, in preparation, I guess, for next week on um, Her Majesty the Queen. I see that poster at the back. And talking about her example, what an amazing example she's been to us as a reigning for so long as monarch and as it's, it's very clear from her speeches as a, as a practicing Christian. And so she's been, in a sense, a real example. And many people think that Jesus dying on the cross was like, oh, what a great example. But it was far more than simply an example of how to be sacrificial, of how to be um, uh, serving others. Far more than that. Christ's death on the cross was powerless and worthless. This is what differentiates the queen from Jesus. It was worthless unless it actually achieved something. When I say I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, that he died on the cross, I believe that his death on the cross achieved something. It purposed something for each and every one of us. It wasn't just a good example. It wasn't just a sacrifice. You and I, we would admire someone who lost their life as they ran into a burning building to try and save someone who was inside. But we wouldn't admire someone who jumped off a building to show how vital they felt, how desperate they felt the situation was of someone burning in a building. Just, just to throw yourself off, a, to, to, to offer a sacrifice with no purpose, no intent, that's just reckless, that's suicidal. But if I lose my life for a purpose, that's entirely different. Jesus' death on the cross was not merely a sacrifice. It was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The word that John uses here is uh, fairly common in the, in the New Testament. It's the, the, uh, the Greek word, hilasmos. And it means, it's, uh, the, the prayer book, which is like the sort of gold standard for Christian liturgy. Uh, so an old English word, propitiation. And they sort of translate harasmos and now propitiation. And propitiation is to appease someone's anger or displeasure. If we're really going to square with the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that our sin, our potential to touch a toe on the flower bed and see what he'll do, is ultimately, just as her little look into my face, is ultimately offence against God. We have incurred, as the theologians say, we have incurred his wrath, his anger, because we have deliberately, in the way in which we live our lives, touched on the flower bed, or even stood on it, or even run all over it. And Jesus died on the cross as an atoning propitiation, an appeasing of God's anger because of our sin. Now, we have a further problem. It's gone quiet. You're listening, you're wrestling here. Oh, anger. And we kind of recognize that I mean, anger is an emotion that is 
It, it's there in all of us. It, it's pretty close to the surface in a number of us. And we know about anger. We know what it feels like when someone is angry with us. We know what it feels when our anger explodes. And you're asking me to, to put my trust, to lean in the chair of a God who's capable of that anger? Uh, I, I thought God was love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loves us. God is love, John says. Love, anger. How do we square them when we're thinking about the cross? And the key thing, and maybe this is the one thing that some of us need to chew on just in thinking about the cross in this aspect, maybe it's this, is that our experience of anger is almost the polar opposite of God's. Sometimes we shy away from thinking about anger. We don't go there at all. And what I'm encouraging you, challenging you, is to, to face the reality of God's anger, but not to understand it as the way in which we, in our sin-stained lives, express anger. God's anger, his righteous anger, exists. It's real. As I want to come on to say, has been dealt with. It's been propitiated by the cross. That's why the cross is so powerful. That's why the cross is so vital. Because it deals with the very real anger of God. Listen to John Stott, great Christian teacher of the 20th century. He says this, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is the polar opposite of ours. What provokes our anger? Injured vanity never provokes his. What provokes his anger? Evil seldom provokes ours. Let me, let me just read that again. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is the polar opposite of ours. What provokes our anger, injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. God's righteous anger, justified, we, we understand the anger of God as we repeatedly on the flowerbed of life and the cross tells us that God himself, this is love, not that we love God, we were walking all over his flower bed, but God loved us and sent Jesus. He's done something to deal with the anger, to propitiate, to appease the anger of his offense, our offense to him. See, many people, they don't, they don't go here. And I, it, it is difficult, it's uncomfortable. It, it makes us uncomfortable as we, as we dare to wrestle with this. And many people go, God is love. I like that. I like that. Like God is love. I love that. Andrex puppies and all that kind of, yeah, great flowers and things. God is love. And a God of love has no need for propitiation because, you see, then I've got to go to the anger thing. But what John Stott helps us to see is that if we, if we avoid this, we miss the entire point of the cross. And when we come and say, I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, we're skirting around the epicenter of what it means to live a Christian life. God is love. And it's not, therefore, that we don't have a need for propitiation. God is love and he provides the propitiation. 
and therein is his love. Propitiation, there's another prayer book phrase, expiation. If you come, actually, we hardly ever, uh, I don't know whether you know, we have an 8.30 Holy Communion service here, and it's uh, every week, if you like to take Holy Communion regularly, you're really welcome to come. Um, and uh, we, we use the prayer book service. We're quite formal at the start of the day, and we kind of get less and less formal as the day goes on. If you like a bit of formality every now and then, uh, you're, you're really welcome. Um, uh, and the prayer book there, it's, it's beautiful language, Cramner. Beautiful language in the, in the lead up to taking communion itself. And he, the prayer book talks about the propitiation of God and the expiation of God. Propitiation is dealing with God's righteous anger. Expiation is wiping away the stain of sin. And atonement encompasses both. Atonement deals with God's anger and wipes away the stain of sin. Atonement, if you picture the word, what atonement does is it enables us, sin-stained people, to come into full communion with a holy God at one meant. That which separates us from God is done away with, dealt with purely, solely through the cross of Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified. He has propitiated God's anger. He's expiated our sin we can enter into a brand new relationship with him. Stuart Briscoe's written a book on um, the creeds, and on this point he says this, man, written a little while ago, men and women, uh, mankind is alienated from God by sin, and God is alienated from mankind by wrath. It is by the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and wrath averted. So that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Sin is expiated and God is propitiated. The cross of Jesus Christ. Interesting that phrase, substitutionary death of Christ. Because this is what, again, Christians through the ages have believed what took place as Jesus died on the cross. When we say, I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, we are effectively saying that he was an atoning sacrifice. He became a substitutional sacrifice. Just as a phrase uh, in 1 Peter, can we, I don't know if you can have that up on the, the screen. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's just a few pages back. And verse 24. Again, if we want to substantiate the creed with some verses, this is not a bad one to learn. Commit to memory. Get it bleeding through the whole of your life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He became our substitute. He, it's crucial to understand the cross that he died in our place. We, we deserved punishment. But God in his love, recognizing the need for punishment, diverts it onto Jesus. He himself, he becomes Jesus. He takes the punishment himself. He is the propitiation. He is the expiation. He substitutes himself for us. 
so that we can step into an atoned, at one new relationship with God the Father. Wow. I believe in Jesus Christ crucified. That's what we're saying. When we sing of the cross, when we look at the cross, and through the cross, that east window, the resurrection, rose again, the Spirit living in us now, opening our eyes to these realities. This is what we're saying. Jesus as our perfect substitute. Perfect because he was totally like us. I know I've used this analogy before, but it's, it's worth repeating in this context. You know, if you're playing on a team and you, you want to substitute someone, you want someone going off from your team, you want, you want the substitute coming on to, in one sense, be exactly the same. If you're playing in a hockey team, you don't want to substitute with a swimmer or an elephant. You want another hockey player. You, you need your substitute to be, in one sense, exactly the same. Jesus, again, through the letter of the Hebrews, he lived our life. He was tempted in every way as we are. He experienced what it is to be tempted. He knows suffering in the creed earlier on. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He's gone through birth like you and I. He's lived our life. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, yes. He knows injustice. He knows trial. He knows all that we go through. He's completely like us. But here's the thing about a substitute. At one and the same time as you want your substitute to be exactly like the one you're substituting, you also, you want them to be exactly unlike the one you're substituting. You're playing a, a game of rugby and uh, someone's got injured. And you know, oh, we, we've got to substitute the injured player. He can't play anymore. So you take off, you don't want an injured player to come on. The whole point of that substitute is you want someone who's completely unlike, <laughs> who's completely fit, who's completely different at the point of substitution. Jesus Christ, completely like us and, in a sense, completely unlike us in that he was fully God. The rescuer who comes completely into our situation in order to rescue us as our substitute. You know those, those air-sea rescue? You see them occasionally in the sort of someone in peril in the sea. They're, they're minutes away from drowning. And the helicopter's there hovering over and they, the line comes out and the guy on the line and he drops down. There's no rescue if the guy hovers all the way down to a meter above the sea and says, good luck, keep, keep swimming. There's no rescue. For a rescue to be affected, that guy has got to get into the very danger that the person is in. He's got to get into the sea. He's got to become cold and wet. He's got to take on every element of risk that the victim's in in order that he can clip on the harness and the rescuer being completely connected to the helicopter but completely immersed in the danger is able then and only then to carry out the rescue. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He, he experienced every single element of our humanity. He experienced every single sin. He was our scapegoat. You're familiar with that phrase? It's in modern parlance still. It comes from the Bible. A, a scapegoat is when something bad has happened and we need to blame someone. We need to sort of exonerate ourselves and blame. So we, we make someone or something a scapegoat. Oh, it was all his fault or her fault. 
It comes from the Bible in Leviticus. The people of God, when they recognized their sin, what, what were they to do with the sin that was weighing them down and separated them from God? And so the priest was commanded to get a goat and he laid his hands on the goat on behalf of all the people and he, he transferred all the sin of the people onto the goat. And then the goat, laden with sin, was released into the wilderness, out of the city wall. And it, it wandered off, laden with sin, abandoned, until it died. And in dying, bearing the sin of the people, the sin of the people died too. They were freed because they had an escape goat. That's where the phrase comes from. Guilt dealt with through the scapegoat. Think of the run-up to this horrendous event. Barabbas, convicted criminal. He's the guilty one. He deserves his punishment. And he goes free. And instead, Jesus, the innocent one, on him the sin of the world is laid. And outside of a city wall, our eternal scapegoat cries in the wilderness of separation from God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's become our substitute. He's become our scapegoat. In order that, through the love of God, we might go free. Final reference, 2 Corinthians. We got that one. Chapter 5. And verse uh, 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's possible through the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Propitiation, dealing with God's understandable anger, expiation, wiping away our sin. Atonement, enabling us to be at one with God through his self-sacrificial substitution. He takes our place. He dies our death that we might live his life. I believe in Jesus Christ, crucified. More than just a proposition, more than just a little sentence tucked in the middle of a creed that we kind of la-di-da our way through. This is crucial to Christian living and to Christian life. What do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? That he, do you believe that he stood before a holy God and became our sin? He wore our sin and bore God's wrath for us, substituting himself in our place so that we could know what it is to face that holy God and live as adopted sons and daughters. 
free from the guilt and the shame of sin free to live the lives that God has ordained for us to live do you believe that? are you living that? leaning back in it? were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all let's stand together